the challenge is helping clients change their mindset away from that win-lose philosophy under the family law proceedings to that win-win philosophy. It's us saving money against the ATO, convincing them to think about it in that context. But if you can talk them around to it, then absolutely it's more money in the family group. So everyone's better off at the end of the process. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 387 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSound for sponsoring this episode. When you try to optimize child support, you will almost certainly come across child maintenance trusts. They are complex, hence not as prevalent as you would think, but still very useful to reduce tax. We have done two episodes about child maintenance trusts before. The first one in episode 309 with Simon Bacon and the second one in episode 314 with Patrick Huang. Today and over the next two episodes, let's do a three-part mini-series about the accepted income of CMTs. Because in the end, this is what it is all about. When is CMT income accepted and when not? The answer starts with section 102 AG and 102 AE of ITAA 1936, or more specific, section 102 AG 2C8 and AE 2B8. These two sections will determine whether the child maintenance trust saves you tax or not. They will tell you whether the income the trust distributes to the children qualifies as accepted income or not. Just to prepare you for the interview, here is what section 102 AG 2C8 says. You know, I start with section 2 and then I jump down to C and then I jump down to 8. So it starts with an amount included in the assessable income of a trust estate. Is accepted trust income in relation to a beneficiary of the trust estate to the extent to which the amount, and now we jump to C, so to the extent to which the amount is derived by the trustee of the trust estate from the investment of any property transferred to the trustee for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So there's already a lot of munition in here. It needs to be income from the investment of property that has been transferred to the trustee for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So that's C. And then we jump down to 8. So for the benefit of the beneficiary and then 8 as the result of a family breakdown. And then it says in brackets C section 102 AGA. And this section 102 AGA is actually very interesting because it goes into quite a bit of detail about what needs to happen to actually have a family breakdown. So you can't just say I have a family breakdown. You actually need quite a bit of legal backup like court orders and the lot. But let's cover AGA later. For now, let's stick to AG, section 102 AG. Why is there so much fuss about Section 102 AG? Why does it matter? It matters because if the income distributed to the children does not qualify as accepted income under Section 102 AG, that income is taxed at penalty tax rates under Division 6AA, ITAA 1936, just like any other passive income that is paid to minors. But if the CMT income does qualify as accepted income, then this income is taxed at other tax rates in the children's return or, you know, assessed to the trustee and then taxed in the hands of the trustee at normal adult rates. And that saves you a lot of tax since your children or the trustee usually have lower marginal tax rates 
than you do. So whether the income within a child maintenance trust is accepted or not under Section 102 AG and AE is the old deciding question. And so this is what Patrick Elwood of Clover Law in Brisbane will talk with you about in this episode. Patrick will answer 15 questions about the accepted income in child maintenance trusts as per Section 102 AG. And sorry, I actually had to cut today's episode into two parts. The 15 questions just got too long. It was well over an hour, too much for your patience and endurance. So we will cover the first seven questions today. And then the next eight questions we will cover next week as episode 387B. So here is Patrick Elwood of Clover Law in Brisbane about the accepted income in child maintenance trusts. And how much work have you done around child maintenance trusts? Well, I think we'll, we'll probably come out as we have spoken to a lot of people about them, but relatively few of them actually go ahead. Some of the issues that the ATO raises with them, man, it's probably for every five people who make an inquiry, only one of them actually go ahead and do it. A lot of time talking about it and not, not a lot of time actually implementing. But after all, you have 20% going ahead. So how many child maintenance trusts would you do per year? One per year or 10 per year? Probably uh, be sort of two or three a year. Yeah, a, a couple, but not a, not a heap. Number one, why is CMT and not just a normal DT or UT? Why one would even consider a CMT and not just go for a normal DT or UT? And are you okay if I just say DT and UT rather than discretionary trust and unit trust? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's really designed around the fact that the CMTs give access to that those tax concessions, which meant that there's the ability to effectively provide for the children of the relationship through pre-tax dollars rather than post-tax dollars. So that child's support obligation, instead of one of the parents having to pay tax on it at their marginal tax rates and, and then pay the other spouse, we can go and invest in some assets which are um, able to be distributed to the children and get the benefit of those $20,000 a year tax-free thresholds. So if you did a normal distribution from a discretionary trust or unit trust, so a DT or UT, then the children would pay penalty division 6AA tax rates on those distributions. But when these distributions come through a child maintenance trust, a CMT, then they receive adult tax rates, hence the first 20,000 roughly is tax-free when you consider the um, low income tax offset as well. So then you basically get the first 20,000 tax-free. That's really the uh, attraction of the CMT, correct? Yeah, correct. And then also the ability to get the, the adult marginal tax rates over and above that 20000 So if, if one of the children gets, say, $40,000 in a given year, the first 20000 is obviously tax-free, but they're still only paying the 15% or whatever the lower tax rate is on that next tranche of income. So that might, even if they're paying 15% tax, that might still be a lot better than one of the parents that might be at 45%. Yes, I agree. The advantage of going through a CMT doesn't stop at 20,000. It goes all the way to 180,000. I agree with you. Number two, the taxpayer changes in a CMT from the paying parent to the child. And then also you already touched on it. With CMT, the taxpayer actually changes. So if you paid the child support out of just normal post-tax income, the parent would have already paid tax on that income. Whereas when you have that income running through a CMT, it's actually the children who pay tax on that income, correct? 
Yeah, spot spot on. So it becomes the children and, and we suddenly get access to, to, well, depending on how many children there are in the relationship, a number of additional tax-free thresholds and, and marginal tax rates to take advantage of, whereas typically it's the, uh, tends to be the spouse who's on the higher income and therefore the higher tax bracket who is inevitably having to pay tax on the income to make those child support payments. So if you're able to shift funds away from that high income individual and, and have it paid directly to the children, use those amounts for it just it becomes a it's a win win. It's less tax paid by the overall family group and therefore more money for the children at the end. So for example, if you had five children, you would receive five times twenty thousand. So you would receive hundred thousand dollars tax free into the family pool to them. Exactly. Number three, who declares the accepted trust income? Somewhere in the um, tax ruling that we are going to discuss in detail, the uh, TR 98-4, somewhere there, I can't find my question now about it, but somewhere there it talks about the trustee paying the tax. And if I may clarify this, it's usually the children who have received the uh, CMT distributions in their individual tax return, correct? And if that is correct, in what cases would the trustee pay tax on the income? Yeah, so there's some special rules where these accepted trust income provisions apply. So ordinarily, as you say, when a trust distributes income, it's the, the beneficiary who discloses it on their tax return and it's the beneficiary who pays the tax. That's part of their individual tax. With these child maintenance trusts, when the income gets distributed, the trustee actually withholds and is, is the party that's responsible for paying what's essentially the child's tax burden. But because it's a child under 18, it, it's the trustee that retains those funds and remits it to the tax office. And I actually found the paragraph. It's paragraph 7 in TR 98-4. And there it says, amounts qualifying as accepted trust income. And that's exactly, you know, not quoting anymore. That's exactly what we want. We want those CMT trust distributions to count as accepted income. So quoting again, amounts qualifying as accepted trust income are accessible to the trustee and are taxed at normal rates. And this accessible to the trustee, that really surprised me because it's accessible to the beneficiary, correct? Yeah, yeah, it's probably a, some confusing language there. It's assessed based on the fact that it was the minor beneficiary who was entitled to it, but to the extent there is tax payable, so let's say that they distribute more than the $20,000 tax-free threshold, then it's the trustee that sort of has the reporting and the payment obligation to the tax office. And then if I may just quickly quote paragraph eight, it says, if the amounts are included in the income of the child, which we assume it is, under section 97 or 100, they are accepted assessable income under paragraph 102 AE, which we will talk about more in uh, shortly, and likewise subject to tax at normal rates in the hands of the child. Sorry, let me just quickly clarify that. Four things regarding distributions to minors, and this applies to any trust distributing to minors. Number one, the trustee is responsible for the collection of tax for distributions to minor beneficiaries. Usually a trust just files a trust tax return, lists all beneficiaries by name, tax phone number, address, etc. So lists all beneficiaries who receive trust income and lists how much they received and what type of income they received, whether there has been any streaming of capital gains or franking credits. The beneficiaries then declare this trust income in their tax return, and they are the ones who pay the tax on it. The trustee has nothing to do with their payment of tax. 
But of course, you already know this. And you already know that this changes when the distribution is to a non-resident or a minor or somebody with a legal disability. Then the trustee is the one who organizes the payment of tax. The big difference between non-residents and minor children, for example, is that the withholding rules do not apply to minor children in closely held trusts. And a CMT is a closely held trust. So the withholding rules don't apply to minors, but let's leave it at that. We will come back to the withholding rules under point four. Number two, the trustee has the right to be reimbursed by the trust for any tax the trustee paid. Any trustee has a right to be reimbursed by the trust. That is a general right as per Trust Act. The Trust Act gives the trustee a general right to be indemnified out of trust assets for any expenses they incur. That general right is usually supplemented by an express right contained in the relevant trust deed. So while not necessary as such, most modern trust deeds give the trustee the right to be indemnified out of trust assets for any expenses they incur. For a CMT, this means that the trustee can use CMT assets to pay the children's tax debt. In other words, the dad can use CMT assets to pay his children's income tax. Number three, minor beneficiaries don't need to lodge a tax return if they have no other income. If minor beneficiaries don't have any other income apart from the relevant trust distributions, then they don't need to lodge a tax return. The trustee already took care of their tax obligations by declaring their income as assessed to the trustee and paying the tax on it. But if minor beneficiaries have other income, then they need to lodge a tax return, include the other income as well as trust distributions, and receive a credit for the tax the trustee already paid. So applying this to a CMT, if the children receive CMT income and nothing else, then they don't have to lodge a tax return. But if the children do have other income, then they need to lodge a tax return listing this other income plus the CMT income and receive a credit for the tax their father already paid. And this probably changes as the children grow up. I can imagine when the children are very little, then they don't have any other income. But as the children become 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, then they might have other income for example, from some small employment after school or on the weekend. Number four, no withholding on distributions to minors in a closely held trust. So now it gets really complicated. And I had to email Patrick Elwood a couple of times to clarify quite a few points in this. So let's start with the TFN withholding rules. They don't apply to minors, as the title said. We actually didn't phrase the title correctly. If I could do it again, I would phrase it differently. I would say, number four, the TFN withholding rules don't apply to minors because you can still have withholding, just the TFN withholding rules as such don't apply. So let's start with the TFN withholding rules. Usually, the trustee has to withhold tax at 47%, including Medicare, if an individual beneficiary does not provide their TFN. But these TFN withholding rules don't apply if the beneficiary is a minor and it is a closely held trust. So the first question is, is a CMT a closely held trust? A closely held trust is a unit trust where 20 or fewer individuals hold 75% or more of the units or a discretionary trust. Unless 
either of these are an excluded trust. We come back to whether a CMT is a discretionary trust or not later on, but for now let's just assume that a CMT is a discretionary trust, hence it is a closely held trust unless it is an excluded trust. So the next question is, is a CMT an excluded trust for the definition of closely held trust? And the answer is no, a CMT is not an excluded trust. If you go through the list, I can't remember it 100% now, but I think you have some superannuation funds there and some publicly listed trust, you know, some obscure setups that definitely don't apply to a CMT. So a CMT is not an excluded trust. So then the next question is, are the beneficiaries of a CMT excluded beneficiaries for the TFN withholding rules? And the answer is yes. Minors are excluded beneficiaries for the TFN withholding rules. So that means the TFN withholding rules don't apply. So now we come to the big question. If there is no withholding for minors in a closely held trust, meaning the TFN withholding rules don't apply, who pays the tax? Let's say the income is 100000 for two children together and the income tax is $7,000 per child, so 14000 in total, and the income tax is so low since the CMT income is accepted income. So how does this work? Who pays these $14,000 of tax? Does the trustee pay the full $100,000 out to the children since the TFN withholding rules don't apply and then the trustee has to pay the $14,000 to the ATO but is then reimbursed by the trust? So in total, the trust pays out $114,000? Is that how it works? I couldn't work this out. So I emailed Patrick and he kindly wrote back with the following. He writes, A CMT will generally be a closely held trust. We already established that. And the TFN withholding rules won't apply to distributions from a CMT to minors. So we already established that as well. But then Patrick continues, however, the trustee is still responsible for paying tax on the distribution to minors for a CMT, pursuant to section 102 AG, rather than the TFN withholding rules. So that means even though the TFN withholding rules don't apply, the trustee still has to take care of the tax payment. So then the second question is, and now I quote Patrick again, the second question then is whether the distribution to the minor includes or excludes the tax component. So does the trustee distribute $86,000 to the child and then pays the other $14,000 to the ATO? Or does the trustee pay $100,000? And sorry, I'm not quoting anymore. Or does the trustee pay $100,000 to the child and then an additional $14,000 to the ATO? And so now I'm quoting again what Patrick is saying. He writes, This hinges on how the trust deed and distribution resolutions have been drafted and gets us into Bamford territory. And I have heard of Bamford. I have a very faint collection of it. I thought Bamford was about the streaming of capital gains and franking credits, but it clearly also has something to do with this case. So continuing with what Patrick is writing, it gets us into Bamford territory, exploring the interaction between Section 97, Section 99 and Section 99A in respect of liability for tax on trust distributions slash accumulations. So Patrick is basically saying it depends on what the trust deed says and what the distribution resolutions say. So Patrick then continues, the situations you have described, so I described to him the 100,000 and then I said, does the trustee pay another 14,000? So does the trustee pay 114,000 in total? That's what I asked Patrick. And so he says, 
the situations you have described are possible. But in the context of a CMT, the trust deed and distribution resolutions would usually be drafted such that the child only receives the net benefit of the distribution. So, i.e., if there is $100,000 of income with $14,000 of tax payable, the resolutions would be drafted to allow the trustee to pay the $14,000 of tax out of the $100,000 of income, leaving a net payment to the children of $86,000. End of quote. So, that is very helpful. So, the TFN withholding rules don't apply and the trustee has to say how the tax gets paid, whether it gets paid out of trust assets or withheld from the distribution. Usually it gets withheld. My gut feeling is also that if the trustee doesn't withhold and pays out the 100000 and then pays another 14000 to the ATO, my gut feeling is that the total distributed income is then actually 114000 and not 100000 And so the tax is actually higher than the 14000 and you have a circular reference. So to make this simple, put into the trustee that tax is to be withheld even though the TFN withholding rules don't apply. And also, why say that the TFN withholding rules don't apply if there is withholding in the end anyway? You know, why not just keep it simple? But anyway, so that is how the TFN withholding rules don't apply, but then they're still withholding through the back door. Now, before we come to the topic of private rulings, which play a big role and are quite prevalent around child maintenance trusts, let's just quickly have a word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20 percent. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups, because this year I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Number four, how common is it to get a private ruling for a CMT? I was quite surprised how much there is on the ATO website. For example, they have an entire webpage just about applying for a private ruling regarding the income from a child maintenance trust. This surprised me, you know, because I thought barely anybody uses CMTs due to this tax ruling 98-4. But based on it, it seems to be that it's more prevalent than we think. Or maybe it's also that the ATO is just really worried about child maintenance trusts and so is on high alert regarding this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I certainly agree. I don't think we see them used in practice that often. I think one of the big impediments or a couple of the impediments as to why we don't see them as commonly as we might, it's not so much the tax officer's view. It's really different by a couple of things. One is that in order for these to work, you generally need a reasonable degree of cooperation between the two separating parents. And that, like in any family law proceedings, you're not necessarily going to have the former husband and wife or the former partners cooperating to the extent necessary for this to be viable. So there's, I've seen plenty of situations where it would have been a great outcome for the family, but because mum and dad are, are at loggerheads and fighting over everything, they're just not going to be able to agree to use one of these. And then the other, I guess, limitation, which is it's highlighted in the tax ruling, but like it's pretty clear from the Tax Act, is this requirement that the capital of the trust needs to ultimately pass to the beneficiary, to the minor. And I've had a number of cases where 
clients have asked about these and, and the idea of being able to distribute income has been attractive to them, but they then having this lump sum of capital, which is ultimately going to pass to the child is not ideal on a few different levels. And so that tends to be a, a factor that discourages people from using them. I say, well, I'm happy for the child to get this income stream for the next 15 years, but the last thing I want is for that child to go and be entitled to a, a lump sum of capital at the end of it. I want my capital back. If you want your capital back, you, you can't use one of these trusts. Coming back to the first reason, the uh, re cooperation between parents, if the parents basically share the spoil, because there's a significant amount of tax saving in there, and if the parents share that, then it's in both interests. So if I, let's say, you know, it's $100,000 of tax to be safe doing this. And then if 50,000 of that results in higher maintenance payments to the child, then I think you can buy the corporation. I think the corporation is more an issue when the payer wants to keep all the spoils of this and doesn't share it, correct? Yeah, logically you're correct. Like logically, the less tax that's being paid, the more there is for the family. What I see though, one of the reasons why I'm not a family lawyer, why I only do tax is that logic doesn't always prevail when it comes to family law proceedings. You, you then throw in the emotions and the dynamic between the parties and it's scary the number of times you'll see someone in a family law proceeding do something which makes absolutely no financial sense just because of the, yeah, the, the tension or the difficulties that they're trying to work through at a personal level. So from a pure financial perspective, we should see a lot more of these than we do. But when you get parents who are determined, we see clients that are determined to spend all of their money on the family lawyers just so that their partner doesn't get anything. In that case, well, giving it to the tax office is no different to giving it to the family lawyers. It's all about preventing, it's all about creating a win-loss dynamic as opposed to a win-win dynamic. Coming to private rulings, do you see a lot of private rulings in combination with the setup of a CMT? So is it usually that when you set up a CMT, you almost always also get a private ruling straight away to make sure the CMT is watertight? Or is that not as common? I just ask this because there's a lot of literature about private rulings on the ATO website, private rulings with respect to child maintenance trusts. Yeah, generally not. I mean, the, the law is fairly settled in this area and even that tax ruling that's been around for sort of 20 plus years now so it's not like there's a heap of uncertainty around how the law applies and so in a in a pretty plain vanilla sort of typical scenario i think we can set these up and get the assets in and, and move forward with a fair degree of comfort that we can do it in a way that's going to satisfy all the requirements and, and it's just it's a relatively low risk arrangement in those typical family scenarios so the situations where we potentially would go and get a tax ruling are where they're wanting to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. So maybe the, the, the trust is going to go and acquire related party assets or there's some concern about whether it's a, an arm's length income that's being derived. That is more so where the private ruling can be useful compared to just a very plain vanilla. Mum and dad are going to set up the trust. They're going to go and put in some listed shares or, or some other sort of genuine arm's length investment and there's not really anything that touches on those gray areas in the tax ruling. Number five, what information is required for a private ruling? When I looked at the uh, information that is required for a private ruling, because the ATO already lists exactly what it would like to see for a private ruling, and it lists copy of the trust deed, 
and then also copies of any relevant court orders and maintenance agreements. And I was really surprised that it doesn't ask for any information, you know, for example, trust tax returns or yeah, tax returns or information about income streams. And then I thought, oh, well, the ATO doesn't ask about tax returns because it already has the tax returns, so it obviously doesn't need to ask for them. And then I also thought they don't ask about income streams because if you want the private ruling to cover an income stream or, you know, the setup you have – then you need to lay that out anyway. And if you don't lay it out, then the private ruling doesn't cover that anyway. So it's up to you. If you want clarity on a question regarding income, accepted income, etc., then you need to outline those details. Hence, the ATO doesn't ask specifically about it because it's you know up to the taxpayer to put on the table what they want to put on the table. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's it. I mean, if, if they're going to get a private ruling, there's potentially two different issues that they might want to get the ruling about. Well, sometimes it'll be both. They might want to get a ruling about whether the trust itself or the establishment of the trust meets the the basic requirements to be a child maintenance trust. That that's where it's about providing a copy of the trust deed and the the family court orders and, and satisfying the ATO that you've got the right beneficiaries and that it's been created in the right circumstances. But then I guess the second discrete issue which you might also ask them to comment on is whether a particular income stream or a particular distribution is going to qualify as accepted trust income. And in order to know that, you probably need the answer to the first question. So was your trust validly established and, and set up in the right way? But then you also need that additional information you flagged about, well, how was the income generated? Was it arm's length? Um, I guess the specifics about the circumstances. And so you'll see some scenarios where all they're going to do is get the ruling on that first question about the trust because they're going to go and buy some listed shares and there's nothing contentious about the type of income being generated. Or, or you might have the opposite where you've actually had a trust that's been sitting there for three or four years and and we're not concerned about the original establishment, but the trust is about to go and acquire an asset which we think might be contentious and therefore we're getting a ruling on the, the income stream as opposed to the trust itself, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Thank you. Number six, private ruling or administratively binding advice. PR or ABA? Just a very technical nerdy question, but just very quickly, and then I get back to the CMTs. What's the difference between a private ruling and an ABA, um, an administratively binding advice? Because when you go into the private ruling for child maintenance trust, it actually has a tick box for an ABA, which made me think, oh, maybe an ABA, an administratively binding advice, maybe an ABA is part of a private ruling. So is it something different or is it just one form of a private ruling? They sort of sit side by side, so they're not the same thing. Really the difference is that there's only certain circumstances where the tax office can issue a private ruling. And if you take an example where the clients are intending to set up a child maintenance trust but haven't actually created it yet, well, in that situation, there's no taxpayer that the ATO can issue the private binding ruling to because the trust hasn't been created, so the, the trustees isn't a taxpayer yet. And so in that scenario, they're, they're at law, they're not permitted to issue a private binding ruling. And so their sort of their workaround or their other mechanism to address that is to do the ABA. And the ABA sort of provides them with a, a process for giving administrative advice, which internally they treat as binding in circumstances where for whatever reason they're not technically permitted to issue a private binding ruling. So the application 
form and the process is basically the same in either case. It's just that in some scenarios, the ATO is going to come back and say, well, we can't issue a PBR because of this particular issue under the legislation. So we'll do the next best thing, which is to give you an ABA instead. I see. Okay, good. So when you are thinking about setting up a CMT and you want to have confirmation from the ATO, then you would do an ABA. And if you have already set it up and then some doubt comes up, then you would do a PR, a private ruling, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Number seven. Without a CMT, it is one parent against the other. With a CMT, it is both parents together against the ATO. Coming back to the Child Maintenance Trust, I think the Child Maintenance Trust very much changes the um, cooperation between the two parents, and you already touched on that. When you have child support agreements, it's basically the parents need to talk to each other and the ATO is outside, the parents are alone. When you have child support arrangements, then I think it's very much one parent against the other and then you have Services Australia and possibly the court being the umpire between the two. But when you have a child support agreement that involves a CMT, then I think it completely changes the dynamic because you basically need both parents against the ATO because the ATO is very focused on this because this is actually about them losing money before with the other two options I outlined. It's basically one parent against the other yeah, it's kind of a win-lose situation how they agree. But when you come to a CMT, it's basically both parents together against the ATO and who stands to lose money is the ATO and not one or the other parent. Do you agree with that analysis? Yeah, that's really the, the challenge is helping clients change their mindset away from that win-lose philosophy under the family law proceedings to that win-win philosophy to what, exactly what you said, that it's it's us. It's us saving money against the ATO and uh, yeah, convincing them to think about it in that context. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes, sometimes it's challenging depending on the personalities involved. But if you can talk them around to it, then absolutely it's more money in the family group. So everyone's better off at the end of the process. Welcome back. The big aha moment for me in this episode is the advice around withholding. Yes, in theory, the TFN withholding rules might not apply, but then again, they might. But either way, just make sure that the trustee stipulates that the trustee can withhold the tax from any distributions. Next week, we recover the remaining eight questions. We will talk about how Section 102 AG and AE work hand in hand, how you don't need to worry about accepted income for an accepted person. And then we will look at Section 5150 because that is an important section for all child support payments that are paid directly and not through a CMT. And then question 12 is a big one where Patrick Elwood will discuss with you what happens when all goes wrong. Then we will cover UPEs and CMTs and how Section 100A comes in. And then last but not least, Patrick Elwood will talk with you about when a CMT vests. When can the children demand payout of the CMT capital and how can you postpone that? That is the plan for next week, episode 387B. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.